Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Every year, about 30,000 people are reported missing in Australia. That's one person every 15 minutes. More than 95% are located within a week. But some, like the cases we are discussing today, they remain missing for decades. 14 women vanished in the Hunter region of New South Wales in the late 1970s and 1980s. Several of these women are believed to have been murdered by Ivan Milat, the backpacker killer. He is still considered a prime suspect in many of the cases we'll discuss today because they fit his M.O., and he worked in the area at the time. We may never know since Malat died in 2019, taking his secrets with him to his grave. Missing Australia in 1980, this week on Mysteriously Listed. Number 7. Elaine Johnson and Kerry Joel Being a rebellious and headstrong teenager is never easy. On the brink of adulthood and desperately wanting independence, it causes rifts in some families. 16-year-old Elaine Johnson and 17-year-old Kerry Joel were two such teenagers. In February 1980, both had recently left home after frequent arguments with their parents. Elaine with her father about sneaking out to parties and Carrie with her mother after she had a car accident in her car. The best friends were enjoying the end of summer, staying at a caravan park in southern Sydney. Elaine was going into the 11th grade at Cronulla High School. She was one of four children who immigrated to Australia from the United Kingdom with her parents. She embraced the relaxed beachside lifestyle. She rode skateboards and wore flowers in her hair. Kerry was going into the 12th grade at Woolaloo Ware High School. She was popular and spunky and had lots of friends. She was in love with her boyfriend, Robert, and had just begun working at the half-case supermarket in Tarran Point. Unfortunately, we don't know for sure when Elaine and Kerry went missing. They would spend long periods at friends' homes and not contact their families, so they were not immediately reported missing. A friend went to the arcade with the girls on February 1st, 1980, but left them to walk home. This is the last confirmed sighting of the girls. Although an unconfirmed sighting of the girls do place them in King's Cross around 1982, but this has never been corroborated. Elaine's father would report the pair missing. However, police did not take him seriously and treated the pair as runaways. This was made worse with rumours that Kerry was pregnant. Police believed they were hiding out until Kerry gave birth, due to the 1980s shame of being an unwed mother. By the time police actually started investigating, the trail went cold. People's memories had faded and timelines were inaccurate. 
Elaine wouldn't even have a missing persons poster until 2018, 38 years after she went missing. The case was referred to the coroner in August 2016. It was determined it would be extremely unlikely people so young would have had the resources to start a new life. Elaine and Kerry were known to hitchhike to Wyong, an hour north of Sydney, a trip they would make several times. Due to the vicinity of Malat's stomping ground at the time, he is considered a person of interest in their disappearance. Due to the balance of probabilities, the coroner summarised her case to state she believed that Elaine and Kerry died soon after they were last seen. The case was referred to the Unsolved Cold Case Homicide Squad. Number 6. Barbara Gibson In January 1980, 28-year-old Barbara Gibson had moved from the country town of Wanji to the big city of Sydney. She was staying with her aunt, but had plans to rent an apartment with friend Sally Tompkin. On the morning of January 19, 1980, she packed her bag and told her aunt she was heading back to Wanjiwanji to spend the weekend with her parents. They weren't expecting her, but she was homesick for the peace and serenity of the country and wanted to surprise them. Even though she hitchhiked regularly, on this occasion, she intended to catch a train to either Dora Creek, Morissette or Fassifern, and from there catch a bus to her parents' home. When Barbara did not return, her aunt reported her missing four days later. As with all the cases we will talk about today, the police did not take Barbara's disappearance seriously. It took them 18 months to interview her friend Sally, and by that point, she had moved to the United Kingdom. Barbara's family are adamant that she would not run away and not tell them. She was extremely close to her parents. She loved writing letters, especially to her mother. Even when she travelled overseas to Bali, China and India, she always kept regular contact with her family through letters and postcards. In the coronial inquest into Barbara's disappearance, Coroner Elaine Truscott determined that it was possible that Barbara did not leave Sydney at all that day, and based on the balance of probabilities, that she was murdered by person or persons unknown. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Number 5. Annette Briffer There isn't much information available on the disappearance of 18-year-old Annette Briffer, but what there is, it seems that she was surrounded with a lot of questionable people. In January 1980, she was living between Asquith and Sydney and the Central Coast. She had a bad relationship with her father, and she would often go missing for weeks at a time, hitchhiking up and down the coast of New South Wales. 
January 10, 1980 was one of those occasions. At 3am, Raymond Nixon would later report to police seeing Annette get into a small orange car at Hornsby, just north of Sydney. Annette would never be seen again. Interestingly, Nixon would later be convicted of the murder of his girlfriend. Nixon was obviously interviewed for his connection in the disappearance, but he denied having any knowledge of what happened to Annette. Police have said that they do not consider Nixon a suspect. In 1995, Annette's uncle John Briffer would contact her father, Raymond Briffer. Briffer and Raymond were no longer close. Briffer had been connected for a quote-unquote sexual-related matter, and Raymond had suspected that he may be involved in Annette's disappearance because he had a car similar to the one his daughter was seen getting into on the night she was last seen and he had dumped this car in bushland not long after. But he couldn't recall exactly where when he was questioned by police. Unfortunately, Briffer would die before he could have that discussion with Raymond, taking any knowledge he has on what happened to Annette with him to his grave. It was also said that Ivan Malat rented an apartment from Annette's father around the time his daughter went missing, something he firmly denies to this day. Number 4. Marcus Alcorn January 29, 1980, was Marcus Alcorn's 21st birthday, a time for celebration. His mother and brother had travelled to Sydney from their home in Gosford, on the New South Wales central coast, and the chef of the bar he worked at had organised a feast for them and his friends. Marcus was well-liked and considered a reliable and caring person who was close to his family. He was studying hospitality at the time of his disappearance and regularly spoke of wanting to open his own restaurant. Marcus was last seen at 1am when he finished the night shift at the Imperial Hotel on Oxford Street in Paddington. He headed home to get changed with plans to return in an hour for his party. But he never returned and he was never seen alive again. His mother would report him missing that night. Now, this is one case where the police would take the disappearance seriously and start their investigations right away. They would find all of Marcus's clothes and his pay in his room. It was initially reported that Marcus's car was found abandoned three days later, on February 1st, at Watson's Bay near The Gap, a known suicide spot at the time police would then go on to state in 2009 that this was not true. Marcus's car was never found abandoned. But this abandoned car may have been misreported by the local police, given the police did consider suicide the most likely result in their 1980 investigation. They completed air searches along the nearby beaches and police divers did check the water off the gap, but no trace of Marcus could be found. Police in their 2009 reinvestigation have stated that they no longer believe Marcus took his own life. 1989, nine years after his disappearance, the case was featured on the TV show Australia's Most Wanted. Unfortunately, no new leads were generated and the case would stay cold. That was until 2009 with the formation of Strike Force Christine. 
Investigators went back to the Imperial Hotel with technology not available at the time of the disappearance. They used luminol, which is a substance that glows if it reacts with bodily fluids, such as blood, and swabs were taken from the cellar. Unfortunately, from my research, I'm unable to find any results from that search. Investigators also made a public plea to locate a New Zealand man, John Brown, who also worked at the bar with Marcus. They stated that he was not a suspect and just someone they wished to speak with. That was 12 years ago, and this man has never been found. Number three, Deborah Balkan and Gillian Jameson. Best friends Deborah Balkan and Gillian Jameson, both 20 years old, were used to doing life together. They met during their early high school days at Cumberland High School. They went to university together to study nursing and now lived together in a house in a North Shore suburb of Sydney. On the evening of January 20th, 1980, Deborah and Gillian were spending a night of drinking and possibly using recreational drugs with friends at the Tollgate Hotel in Parramatta. The two women were last seen leaving the pub with an unknown man in dirty clothes at 7pm. It is not known what they were doing for the next two hours. The last known contact would be by payphone when Deborah contacted their other housemate, Susan Gilchrist. Deborah would tell Susan that they were going to Wollongong, which is two hours south of Sydney, that they were with a former workmate of Gillian's, who Deborah describes as, quote-unquote, the gardener fellow. Deborah then asked Susan to call the hospitals they worked at to say they were too sick to go to work because they weren't planning on returning for a week. Now, this is not unusual behaviour for Deborah and Gillian. They had done this before. It was not unusual for Deborah and Gillian to go off with people they hardly knew on a promise of a party or drugs. But when they did not return after a week, both Deborah and Gillian were reported missing to police. Despite an extensive investigation and media campaign at the time, very few tips came in. However, in the months that followed, more than 40 alleged sightings were reported from all over Australia. One sighting in particular that was of interest to the police was from a mother and daughter who saw two young women in a car in Parramatta, which is in Western Sydney, and they saw them soon after the disappearance. These two young women matched the description of Deborah and Gillian. The mother and daughter described two men trying to put jumpers on the women who were limp and floppy. Now, the daughter was hypnotised in 1998 as part of the reinvestigation, but no further information could be garnered. In September 1980, a woman who worked at the snack bar at the Tollgate Hotel told police how she had been threatened by a man who she believed was the same man who left with Deborah and Gillian on the night they disappeared. This man approached the woman and told her, quote, It was a terrible thing that happened. You know they are dead. The police won't find them. This will happen to you and your two sons. He then threatened to follow her home and slit the throats of her and her children. This woman would quit her job that night, 
never to return again. There have been several persons of interest named over the decades that follow. At the time, Ivor Malat was working just one mile away from the Tollgate Hotel where the women were drinking that night. Malat was interviewed by the police in 2004. However, he denied ever having met the women. Yes, it is believed that Malat was responsible for far more crimes than what he's been charged with. But given the number of young people killed around Sydney in the 1970s and 1980s, we are only scratching the surface in this episode. It is very possible, even probable, that another serial killer was operating in the area at the time. The other persons of interest include two former classmates of the women and a gardener at a local nursing home. Peter King had been dating Deborah at the time and was the person who introduced her to drugs. Peter Flood had been obsessed with Deborah since high school and had prior convictions of sexual assault. He was also known to carry photos of the two women and question people about the disappearance, stating he was conducting his own investigation. And finally, Michael Toomey, a gardener at a local nursing home. He was friendly with Gillian and was part of the group that the women were with that night. Was he the gardener fellow that Deborah was talking about on their travels to Wollongong? We may never know. The case was reinvestigated in May 2006 on the insistence of the coroner. Many of the persons of interest have since passed away, potentially taking any answers with them. Number 2. Linda Davy. The last two cases we'll discuss today are thought to be connected. Both were beautiful young women who may have gotten in over their head in a dangerous situation. Both lived nearby to one another. Both were originally from New Zealand. And both left mysterious, haunting letters to their loved ones, never to be seen again. 22-year-old Linda Davy grew up in Wakatani, New Zealand, and upon finishing high school, she wanted to experience life and freedom before university. Linda would travel to Europe before settling in Australia, living there for two years working as a waitress at the time of her disappearance. Linda had been described as having a bright and lively personality, though also being extremely trusting and naive. She would sometimes get herself into dangerous situations with men she did not know. In fact, at a party a year before she went missing, a friend overheard a man referring to Linda and saying, quote, someone could murder or hurt someone like that, unquote. Linda was last seen by her boyfriend, Stephen Lavender. Linda visited Stephen at the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, where he was being treated for hepatitis. He would later report that Linda seemed happy, yet obviously concerned for his health, and that there was nothing out of the ordinary from that visit. The day after visiting Stephen in hospital on April 6, 1980, Linda went out in the town with a friend, Helen Petty. They ended up at a nightclub, the Mansell Room, in the Sydney suburb of King's Cross. It was here they met with two unknown men. They would be described by Helen as a first man, being around 25 years old, 5 foot 10 and of slim build. 
He had a fair complexion with longish hair that was pulled into a ponytail, hazel eyes and an oval face. He told the women that he was from Melbourne. The second man was also around 25 years old, 5 foot 8 and of medium build. He had a medium complexion with curly mid-length hair, a pointed nose and was wearing a gold-coloured chain. He told the women that he was from Sydney and he drove a pale yellow four-door Japanese car, possibly a Datsun. The men invited the women to continue to party in Melbourne, Victoria, about a 12-hour drive south. Helen declined the offer, but it is believed Linda left with the two men. She has never been seen again. A few days later, Stephen would receive a hastily written letter saying, quote, Dearest Stevie, gone away for a few days. Be back soon. Love you lots, Linda. Unquote. This all happened over the Easter weekend. Friends were away visiting family, and it wouldn't be until two days later, when the housemates returned, did they realise Linda was gone. The light in her room was left on, and virtually all her possessions were there. Everything except for Linda. Investigators and Stephen made public appeals at the time. This did bring forward a promising lead from a woman claiming to be an Air New Zealand air hostess. She said she sat next to someone matching Linda's description on a flight between Sydney and Christchurch. This woman told the air hostess that she was over her relationship with a man named Steve and she was moving back to New Zealand for good. However, the contact number and address the woman gave to police did not exist. It is the belief now that this sighting was a hoax. Linda's case is considered still open and unsolved. There is currently a $100,000 reward for any information leading to the whereabouts of Linda Davey. Number 1. Marion Sandford 23-year-old Marion Sanford was a troubled young woman. Life was going well for Marion. She finished university and was working as a nurse. Something happened, though, and Marion got caught up with drugs, heroin in particular. Because of this, Marion's parents arranged for her to move to Sydney to live with her brother Peter in 1978. They wanted her away from bad associates so she could get her life back on track. Instead, she met a man who would become her boyfriend, Warren Mills, and turned to sex work to support their 300-a-day heroin addiction. Sadly, because of this, it sounds that Marion was getting herself into some very dangerous situations. One would have her being picked up by two men who forced her to take LSD and then they raped her. And when she reported this assault to the police... They charged her with possession and use of heroin. Marion and Peter would fly back to Auckland, New Zealand for Christmas 1979. She promised her family that she was tired of her lifestyle and upon returning to Australia, she would get help for her addiction, address her court issues and pay them back for the money she owed them. January 1980... Marion would tell friends she was offered an opportunity to be a drug carrier to Malaysia, that the whole process would take two to three weeks and it would be worth thousands to her, enough to clear her debts. 
Three days later, January 24, 1980, Peter would arrive home to a handwritten note on the kitchen bench from Marion, reading, quote, I am not at all sure when I will be home, but it should be within two days to one week at the latest, I suppose. Met a couple of friends. See you later. Love, Marion. Unquote. But Marion would never return home, and she would never be seen again. On the 30th anniversary of the missing persons case, the New South Wales Police declared a $100,000 reward for the whereabouts of Marion Sanford. The accompanying coronial inquest determined that Marion was most likely murdered in the days following her disappearance. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.